This New America NYC event took place on October 3rd, 2017, and is titled A Moonless Starless Sky, Ordinary Women and Men Fighting Extremism in Africa. This event features Alexis Okewo and Miriam Elder. Hi everyone, thanks for joining us today. And uh, congratulations to Alexis on really uh, an incredible book. Um, I couldn't put it down. It's beautiful, it's compelling. Uh, it'll really make you think um, about some of the hugest issues uh, in the world. And I'm really excited to talk to you today. I wanna talk about your process, I wanna talk about the issues. Um, and I think I'll dive in by talking about uh, the section on Somalia, because a lot of you might have read that excerpt in uh, The New Yorker a few weeks ago. And I'd love to understand um, how you seized upon the story of uh, Aisha, a girl who, uh, whose dream in life is to play basketball, and, and the women around her, the coaches, and how you, really, how you seized upon that and thought that this is the best way to tell the story of Somalia today. Yeah, I think it was about five or six years ago, I saw a photo essay of, of, of a team of, of Somali women basketball players who had made it to their first international tournament in years, um, playing in Qatar, and they'd won fourth place. And it was striking because where they're from in Mogadishu, um, it's really not normal to see girls playing basketball. It's not really widely accepted. Um, a lot of the girls had been threat for, for playing basketball. They had been um, sent death threats over the phone, um, in person, and all they wanted to do was just pick up a ball and play and wear pants and a shirt. But because they were doing that, they were being threatened with death. And I thought, wow, this is something that's an ordinary and kind of and a rare kind of bravery. Ordinary because they're not trying to be activists, they just want to play sports. And then rare because they're playing sports, yet they're being threatened um, with death for doing so. And so I kind of always had in the back burner, like I want to go do the story. I thought it would represent modern Somalia in an in in interesting way because Somalia obviously has been wracked uh, by conflict for years, uh, two plus decades but um, its people are, are, are surviving anyway, they're resisting anyway in many different ways. And I like the fact that these girls were, were exerting their own kind of quiet resistance. It wasn't like, oh, I'm gonna go on the street and protest. It was like, I wanna live a normal life, I wanna play sports, I wanna be a normal teenage girl, and that's my way of resisting. And so when I went there, I didn't know any of them, um, but I went to a couple of games and I started talking to some of the girls and I was in the bleachers one day um, watching a game in Mogadishu and this girl came up to me and her name was Aisha and she had this little nose ring and she came up and she wouldn't stop talking and I was like, who is this girl? Um, and she started telling me about all the things that had been happening to her about how she didn't really care because all she wanted to do was play basketball and I thought, I want to get to know you because I think you're incredible. And I'm not, and I'm not saying like, you know, She's this perfect person. I mean, she is a teenage girl, but I just admire the fact that she wanted to do what she wanted to do and she was gonna do it no matter what. You know, it reminded me of, you know, um, teenage girls that I know here and like how they just wanna live their lives. And the level of access that you managed to navigate is incredible. I mean, with Aisha, who you mentioned is really outspoken and, you know, outgoing, but you talked to so many people and you got these intimate moments where they're like, you know, she's like taking off her dress so you can see her track pants, you know, under underneath. How did you, how did you find navigating that level of access um, with the people you were trying to speak to? 
Yeah, I mean, I think often um, with that story and I and I uh, with especially with the Uganda story, I was often working with usually an interpreter who was really instrumental in gaining access into the community. Like, for example, in Somalia, I was working with a Somali filmmaker who's also working on a documentary about women's basketball in the country. And she didn't know Aisha either, but we would go to Aisha's house and, you know, probably against security protocols, um, let our security escort kind of just leave us for the day and hang out with her at our house. And that was the best way to just be there all day, um, show up kind of every afternoon and be like, we're here. Um, we want to follow you to the game. We want to see what you're doing. And that was the way I think she began to open up and kind of trust me and then let me see her do stuff like, you know, pull on her track pants underneath her long skirt, which no one else is supposed to see she's wearing, but she wears them all the time because she wants to be reminded that she's a basketball player, even while wearing, you know, um, an abaya in the street. There are also these amazing moments where you see, like, you talk about, uh, is it one of her cousins who's, like, partying right. in town? So how do you, I mean, how do you navigate that? Because you do want to show the, like, the, you know, the many sides of Somalia. It's not just a place where a, a girl is trying to make her way on a post-war society. Um, so how do you balance showing the more lighthearted sides of life? Yeah, I mean, that was something that I felt was important to include. You know, I was even surprised getting to Mogadishu and I'm thinking this is gonna be like this bombed out landscape and we're just gonna um, work during the day and we have to be inside at night and that's it. And then realizing that no, actually people go to clubs and like, you know, they're not exactly legal, but they do go out and they do like party on the beach and they have fun. And I thought it was important to include because this is life in Somali. It's not all death and destruction. It's like people trying to live their lives despite all of the, the radicalism and all of the forces trying to keep them inside, trying to keep them as victims. And so that's why I thought it was important to talk about my first interpreter before I hired her and how she <laughs> liked to get high on the beach and like, you know, wanted me to bring her tequila from Kenya, even though alcohol is banned in Somalia. So I thought it was, yeah, I thought it was important. Like, let's, let's show all sides of these places because that doesn't often happen. So how are they all doing now? You know, one thing in the book is I don't want to kind of draw an artificial happy ending. I wanted to just show that their lives were still in progress, but I think things are better. I think they're moving through. Like, um, you know, Aisha is still playing you know, and, and we'll see where it goes from there. And then, uh, where are the other characters? Um, an activist in Mauritania, you know, he, he, had, he had actually just recently got out of prison for a while, and to some people, I think that would have been a sign to kind of keep things quiet, but he's still working, he wants to run for president again. Um, so this is an activist in Mauritania who was fighting against yeah, uh, slavery in the country. Right. Um, in Nigeria, um, I wrote about a schoolgirl who had been kidnapped by Boko Haram then escaped. She finished high school. She wants to apply to college. Um, I also read about a vigilante there who has kind of scaled down his operations as the war against Boko Haram kind of ebbs and flows a little bit. And then in Uganda, I wrote about a couple who were both kidnapped by the LRA uh, and then both escaped. And, and, you know, they're just kind of dealing with the struggles of daily life. But I think the worst is behind them, and they're just trying to figure out how to live their lives, you know, post 
the the part on Uganda is just absolutely um, heartbreaking and stirring from beginning to end. And that's once you know throughout the book, I think you do a really really great job of holding dichotomies in place. Like uh, people who are drawn into militant groups can also be victims. So how did you approach that uh, throughout the book, hold, keeping that dichotomy alive? That people can be both perpetrators and victims? Yeah, I think, well, I mean, because I think it's something that I realized even as I was interviewing um, the subjects, um, you know, and, and on, on one day they would tell me maybe it's about some of the more brutal things um, in the case of the former child soldiers that they had been forced to do. But then and the, and the next day, you know, you could see their, their vulnerability with their family and talking about their lives before their abductions and, and the things that were important to them. I mean, the, the, key to, the key, it seemed, was to find out as much as I could about their lives before the first, um, you know, extreme impact happened and then the choices they made during that time and then how they dealt with it after. And that seems to be the best way to kind of draw a picture of who these people were, is, is seeing the before, the during, and the after and, and how that all came together. So um, the story, the Uganda story is there's um, Bosco, right, who's uh, taken into the Lord's Resistance Army and Eunice and the power dynamic there is bizarre at first and then they fall in love. Do you want to explain that a little bit to the audience and then I can ask you some more, some more questions? About yeah, um, so the first story in the book is about a couple, um, Eunice and Bosco. They were both um, taken at different times by the Lord's Resistance Army, which is a fundamentalist uh, Christian extremist group that began in Uganda decades ago. Um, the boy was taken to be a child soldier, the girl was taken to be a sex slave, and she was paired with the child soldier. Um, they ended up having children together, living together in the bush. Um, and then later on, um, he, they both wanted to, to, to go back home to escape. And so he ended up facilitating her escape with their children, and then he later escaped. Now, when they both got back, um, Eunice, the woman, had a choice about whether to be with him or to go her own way. And much to the dismay of her family and her neighbors, she decided to reunite with this man who she was forced to, as a child, sort of be his, his sex slave, his bushwife. And it's about how they, why they decided to be together, why they decided to reunite, the life they made in the aftermath, and how being together and loving each other is, was their own form of resistance against what the LRA tried to do, with, do, to, do to them, which was rip away their family, their sense of a normal life, their emotional connections. And so it, it's, 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 you know, it's a story that, that can feel a little disturbing, but I think once you get to know them and, and what motivated their choices, it begins to make more sense about why these, these two former abductees chose to be together. And you also revealed a lot, I think, about your, your process and about yourself when, uh, when writing about them. Um, there's, I, I wrote down the quote because it was just so, uh, so powerful. The way that you describe interviewing them, I'm not going to find it right now, but uh, there it is. You, you called interviewing them an extensive, invasive procedure. And well, could you talk about that a little bit, what it felt like to interview people who had been through uh, so much? Yeah, I mean, it's it it felt like 
Yeah, it, it did. It felt like doing a procedure on them because as delicate as I tried to be and as sensitive as I tried to be, I was still asking them to recount their trauma and pain, you know, kind of on a continual basis for an extended amount of time. And it was something that really hit me when I visited them on a later trip and they told me that uh, one of the children had overheard one of our some of our interviews and kind of had learned details about their parents' past that he didn't know before. And um, it's, it's, it's a very difficult thing. It's, it's, it, it brings up questions of, you know, is, is this worth it? You know, it, it is, what I'm, is this story that I'm telling worth the kind of procedure I'm doing on these people? You know, the kind of invasive questioning. And, you know, I was only reassured by the fact that, A, my um, interpreter, who was also a formerly abducted child soldier, um, you know, in any kind of tricky moments, he helped guide me as, as far as, you know, how to be sensitive enough in my questioning and, you know, and, and what, to, what to say or not to say. And then also by Eunice and Bosco themselves, who did actually want to talk about this, but I'm sure it wasn't easy for them. So why do you think they wanted to share their story with you? I think part of it was, this was the first time they'd really talked about it at length. And it was in part kind of like a confession and part kind of therapy maybe a little bit. Um, yeah, yeah, I think. <laughs> and if you could go back, do you think that you would not want the son to hear what had happened? Like, would you have done that differently? Yeah, I mean, we, we tried as hard as we could um, to make sure the children weren't around. But, um, yeah, I, I guess it's probably inevitable. Yeah, yeah. So let me ask you um, more about just where you are in your career and what made you think, you know, okay, now is the time to, to write this book? Uh, I think, so um, a couple of years before the book kind of originated, I had, had done, I'd started the Eunice and Bosco story. Um, and I remember... Um, my agent, Jen, and I thinking, like, this, this will be part of something longer one day. But we didn't know what it was going to be. Um, and then around the Chibok crisis, you know, when 300-plus girls were abducted from a school in northeast Nigeria by Boko Haram, it began to emerge that the kind of people I, I, w I was drawn to and what was writing about were um, really strong, extraordinary personalities and who had had very dramatic arcs of their lives um, where things had been okay and then something drastic happened and they then reacted in very memorable, um, significant ways. And so once that pattern became clear, you know, it seemed like, okay, this is worth something longer, especially because I can't, hadn't really seen, you know, a, a book length, uh, something book length on, on stories like this. Like I'd, I'd seen things on extremism, like on the extremist forces, but not, the people involved in it had always, been, to me, been portrayed as sort of victims who were just, you know, being killed or being maimed or being raped, as opposed to people who were actually trying to fight back. Or the stories are usually told through the perpetrators, like right. through the militants, rather than the societies and the, the people in the societies that have right. to have to live with it. Right. And what made you um, kind of order it the way that you did, like choosing, you know, really four in-depth stories, the way that you did? Yeah. Um, well, actually, we started with. I think twice as many at first, and then it made more sense to just focus in on um, a f the, f the few that really, the few that I, I was really connected to and really drawn to, and that I could really dig into, I could, that I could go back and 
really explore at length. And specifically these four stories, because I, you know, I hadn't read a lot. I mean, before I wrote about slavery in Mauritania, I mean, I knew slavery generally existed, but I didn't know on the scale. I never read about it. And, or maybe I'd read a little, but I didn't know there was actually someone who was doing something about it and getting thrown in jail for it and being threatened with death for it. And so the, these four stories just like, felt like they needed to be told. And, and if they didn't, like no one else would. So well, as, as a foreign editor who uh, <laughs> sends uh, people all around the world and um, is trying in some way to you know, remake the image of the foreign correspondent as an elder, elderly white gentleman, um, <laughs> how, um, you know, how does your background, your parents are from Nigeria and moved to the South, in the in seven in what year when, are they here? It? <laughs> 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 um, so how does you know how does your personal background, um, you, like you said, these are stories that uh, that that you could tell. Um, how do you how do you see it? Yeah, I mean, I think it's been a great advantage. I think that I mean, you know, not to say when I first moved to Uganda like a decade ago, I mean, I didn't necessarily know more about how to like get on and work in Africa by being of African descent, but I felt I, I was, I felt like I got comfortable um, perhaps more quickly. Um, and I felt like my subjects also felt um, comfortable with me more quickly. I mean, some have said that, you know, even by virtue of, of having same skin color, general African descent, I think it has, subjects have told me it's, it's, it's made, um, it's made the connection faster. And, and then especially when I moved to Nigeria um, in 2012, that felt like uh, a different kind of homecoming, even though I had a lot to learn <laughs> about being there. So, and yeah, and, and, and just working on the continent, um, being of African descent, I just feel like it's a great advantage. I, I feel like um, it does get me greater access in certain situations. So you describe this in the book, and um, so most of my reporting career is in Russia, and my parents are Russian, and they fled the Soviet Union in the mid-70s. And so I had that conversation with my mom, like, sitting at the table, like, okay, so I'm going to Russia. And she's like, you are not going to Russia. Um, what, was, what was it like to tell you to tell your parents that this is what you wanted to do? <laughs> Similar. <laughs> Well, just because they, they were they were worried, you know, um, Nigeria is a country that's you know progressively broken down more over the, over the years since they've left, and it, it, I think it became later clear with with when they saw the stories I was doing, like why I wanted to be there. But of course, at first, it's very uncertain, and they're like, you know, we don't want you to get to to, to die to get killed, or you know, um, but but yeah, I think. Um, it's it's something that we all came that they came around to and now support, even though they don't want me reporting on Boko Haram, I'm sure anymore. But <laughs> well, let me ask you about um, about uh, the Nigeria story. And you know, I, everyone here, I'm sure, followed the Bring Back Our Girls campaign very closely. And you describe about you know how there were so many previous kidnappings. This was a horrific event and a string of horrific events. So. What do you think? What made like the the world seize upon this in a way that maybe they hadn't before to to similar instances? Yeah, I mean, in my opinion, I think it was the sheer size of it at one in one instance. Um, before there were other kidnappings here and there. I mean, you know, on a grand scale, when added all the way up. But I think just the 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 optics of like 
a large group of girls taken from their school in the middle of the night while taking final exams. I mean, that's just, it's, it's horrifying. Um, and, and it was, and I think it was unfortunate. It was fortunate that people outside Nigeria did take it up because I think in the beginning, there was still that kind of, I don't want to say indifference, but a little bit that this was more of the same in, in the Northeast and that this wasn't that out of the ordinary, but it was, and so. Do you think that it fundamentally changed the landscape of the way that people in the US maybe think about Nigeria, or do you think that things have kind of gone back to how they were before and people maybe don't pay as much attention? Yeah, I think so. I think the latter. I think that, I mean, we don't even hear much more about what's happening with, with Boko Haram anymore, even though you know, the government said they're winning the war at one point, but it's actually not true. And it's kind of you know, scary to think that it would take another shocking act like the kidnapping to kind of focus attention on that again. Um, so I have like a pretty basic question that's just kind of um, plagued me since that all happened. You know, the day after, the day after it, it emerged that the girls had been taken, the, was it the, the government or the military came out? And, military. The military came out and was like, it's fine, we freed them. Why? Why would they lie in a way that was so disprovable? Yeah, I mean, the question was as good as mine. <laughs> I mean, uh, yeah. I mean, but that was the thing about reporting in Nigeria is that, or reporting on the Boko Haram crisis, is that it was so hard to ascertain the truth. Um, you know, I remember one time there was an attack in the town of Bag Baga. Um, this was, I don't remember what year it was. Um, maybe early 2015, and the reports came out initially that perhaps over 2,000 people had died. And then there was another report that maybe no, it was just actually a few hundred. Because there was, you know, on one hand, there was, um, there was a lack of reporters in that specific area. It was very dangerous for reporters to be there. But then there was no government cooperation to actually ob obtaining the truth. In fact, there was often government hostility, military, you would call the military spokesperson, there'd be hostility to like actually find out how many people died. I mean, you can never find out how many Nigerian soldiers had ever died. They were always lying about that. And so it was just constant like, you know, grinding against, you know, obstacles to find out what is the truth, like what, what's happened. I think that's something that's similar with uh, between Nigeria right. and Russia. And also, you know, the case in Russia anyway was that that just led you down the path of uh, conspiracy theories. It right. just exactly. made people trust the government even less. So how do you, but how do you navigate that? Let's say you're speaking to, you know, three regular people and a couple of activists and you hear a theory, but it's simply a theory. Do you, how do you re report that out? How do you deliver that to your readers? Do you ignore it? This is, I think, like also a relative uh, topic for the U.S. now with, you know, like the fake news, schmake news. Yeah, I mean, I, I would try to, to, to make that clear that I've talked to these people. I've, I've tried to use my own reasoning and investigation to, to, to determine something, but that it's still not absolutely clear. Because I think that's important because, as you said, yeah, there, there's still a lot of conspiracy theories. I mean, there's still people who, in Nigeria, who believe the Chibok kidnapping didn't happen, that it was, it was a conspiracy of, of you know, um, northern northern Muslim politicians for political gain. So, I mean, that's the problem with the lack of truth, with the lack of openness about the fact that we don't have the full truth. It leads to, it can lead to a lot of mayhem. So what should reporters be focusing on in, in Nigeria today? I mean, there's a president who spends like half his time, I think, in London, maybe. 
Um, so what, what are the different challenges, I guess, today from when, uh, from when you were reporting on this story in particular? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, it's, it's, it's different, but it's, it's still similar. I mean, you know, with the president, um, we don't really know about his health, his health issues, supposedly what has taken him to, to London. Um, and supposedly he's okay, but we're not sure. And so, again, it's just about kind of finding the closest thing to the truth, but still being clear that this is all we know. Um, I'll, I could talk about Nigeria forever, but I'll bring it, I'll try and bring it back to the book a little bit. Um, is there something that didn't make it into the book that, that you wish had? That's a good question. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, I could have talked even more, I think, about um, but that, I mean, there's a reason I didn't. I just about sort of the personal experiences I had with each of the people I wrote, whether it's just like joking over like dinner or, you know, just kind of things that would even show th their lightness, um, that to them it's not just all about the struggle. Like they do actually have all these other parts of their lives. Um, and I try to show that as much as I can, but you know, obviously there's so much you can put in. But you know, like the vigilante, um, well, the government auditor turned vigilante in Nigeria who, um, who, you know, who liked to listen to Billy Ocean tapes in his car and like, you know, just like, and like the, I, I think I might have mentioned this, I don't know if I did, but like the anti-slavery activist in Mauritania who every time I we went to his house, he had Celine Dion on loop. And I'm just like, what's going on? Like, <laughs> um, yeah, just trying to feel their lightness. You said that was by design um, after mentioning that, you know, your moments with them. And like you, you are, I mean, you're obviously on every page of this book, but you talking about yourself is, I, you, it's, it's a very, it's kind of a small part of the book. And mm -hmm. I find like when, you know, when journalists write books, a lot of the time, because, you know, we spend so much time reporting on other people, we put a lot of ourselves into them. And it felt like a real difference here. So why did you decide to kind of keep yourself not overwhelming the book, I guess. Yeah, I mean, I, I even had, I think I was even reticent at first to put myself in at all, but then I realized the value of it because I never wanted to take the focus off them. Um, I, I, you know, be, but because there are four different, disparate stories, I did want to be the connector in a way um, to show how I encountered each of them and interacted with each of them, but I wanted the focus to be on them because I just hate when, I mean, I like to read books where people are in it too, but not when, it overpowers the stories they're trying to tell. Yeah, I hear you. <laughs> um, and uh, you know, an another thing that really, it's really refreshing in the book that um, like the US isn't really a thing, like the West as a concept isn't really a thing. Yeah. Um, in books about you know, foreign lands, that's a really, really rare thing. Was that also by design? Yeah, definitely. Um, because also this is the way I try to write my stories too. I try to, um, you know, even when I reach out to like experts or analysts, I want them to be, you know, like Africans are my first choice. If I'm writing about Africa um, or, you know, whatever case, I'm writing about Mexico right now, I want it to be Mexican because I think those are always the best people to ask. So I, I, it's, it's definitely one of my things. Like I don't want, I am reluctant as possible to put Westerners in my stories unless they're directly involved. I don't like to sort of throw them in. I mean, you know, I'll put like my editor hat on. It's hard these days, though, right? Because I mean, especially with uh, Trump absolutely dominating everything, you feel like there has to be some kind of a connection um, 
to Americans, let's say, you know, daily lives. So did did you find, I mean, was that, was it an easy kind of thing to put any uh, American issues to the side or did you face resistance from editors or for anybody with that? Yeah, I mean, there are definitely lines in there, you know, when I'm talking about, um, briefly, about the U.S. involvement in Somalia or how the U.S. was chasing Joseph Kony, when it's like, okay, I actually do have to, have to bring in something here, but I did veto a line about Trump somewhere in the book. What was it? Tell I think us. it was, you know, Trump, um, it was when they decided to pull the U.S. Um, special advisors who were helping to um, capture Coney, and um, Trump had said something about it, and I think um, I was going to put a quote, something that he said about it, and I was like, never mind. From back in the day? Or uh, like, uh, no, no, from recently, now? yeah, from recently, yeah. Okay, well, I think that we can all say thank you for not including Donald <laughs> Trump in your book. It was it was truly refreshing. Um, I'd love to uh, take some questions from uh, from the crowd if you guys have any. Hi, Alex. Um, <laughs> it's an interesting story. I saw your advertorial on Twitter, and my colleague convinced me to come. And I'm glad I'm here. I'm Nigerian. Um, I love the fact that you had to left you left everything here back to the country it's a good thing but i i'd like to i haven't read the book i'll like i would love to read it but i want to understand why you decided to go to the front lines quote and unquote because i stay in nigeria and each time i leave abuja to the to meduguri my parents are always crying <laughs> like they are nigerians they stay there you know so i want to understand what led is it the is it what is the driving force for you to capture these stories. Sometimes I try to understand, you know, why you're doing what you're doing. I want to get a picture of, you know, why you think this, uh, this is an important story that people need to, to hear about. The last story I did from Meduguri was the woman who was willing to donate her daughter to Boko Haram. And at some point it was traumatic for me as a person. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Um... Well, you know, I, I'd been covering Bokram actually, you know, even before I went to Meduguri, I'd been covering them, you know, um, I guess since 2010, and I'd gone to Joss, and I'd gone to, um, you know, Plateau State, which is not as frontline. And so when it became more of a war in the Northeast, I think it, it was just kind of my sense just to follow the story. I wasn't necessarily drawn to it because I, you know, I wanted to be on the front lines or it was like adrenaline rush or anything. I just thought this is the next phase of the story, so like time to go here. But I do know what you mean about emotionally affected. I mean, I think um, I don't know if you have the final version of the book, but I do talk about in the final version of the book about how um, covering that story was really um, became emotional for me in the end because it was it was just a lot, you know, talking to people every day. Um, people who became my friends who, who, who lost a lot during that time, lost relatives, lost people they loved. Um, but yeah, for me, I think it was more, more about just following the story as opposed to, because I was scared too, but, <laughs> but I think, yeah, as opposed to being in a, in a war zone. How, how do you uh, take care of yourself after doing such a difficult story? I think it's also after the Eunice and Bosco story where you mentioned you know, coming back to New York and um, realizing that you're exhibiting signs of depression. So how, you know, how do you make sure to take care of yourself also when you're, and I think as, you know, journalists, we, we deal with this a lot because we want to, you know, we think that it's never us, right? Our job is to 
pass on the experiences, the suffering, the emotions of other people, but it, you know, you explain beautifully how it affects you. So what do you do? Yeah, I mean, for me, it's just been um, talking. I mean, yeah, talking, talking to people who've done the same thing. Um, that's been really helpful because I think, especially when I did that first story, you know, this past story, I, I wasn't really talking about it. I was keeping it inside and I was kind of brooding over it. Um, but, it, but yeah, talking has been, has been so helpful for me. I mean, you know, I think that it's never not going to be um, an emotional kind of work, but I think that that does help. And it's, it's healthier than other ways. <laughs> True. Um, does anybody else have any questions? Good evening. Um, Thank you, Alexis, for this and, and for the book. Um, it's good to see you. One question I had actually was, um, so so much of your writing concerns uh, Africa and Africans and sort of centering them and capturing their realities and, and, you know, the extreme nature of a lot of their realities, but also a lot of the quotidiana. And I was wondering if you could talk about, you know, starting out in your career as a writer, as a reporter, did you find that 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 was going to be your beat, or did you sort of, you know, sort of wander around before finding that, or did you know just immediately that you know I want to write about Africans? Uh, that's a good question. I didn't. I mean, I knew I was interested because when I first started out, um, I had an internship at a state newspaper, state-run newspaper in Uganda, and you know I was doing everything from like writing about like in the environment, like random protests. Um, and so I knew I liked reporting. I wasn't particularly drawn to, um, like, I need to be in, in Africa. And so after two years there, I left. And I lived in Mexico. And I was in Cuba for a little bit. And But I mean, eventually, um, Africa pulled me back. And I realized it was bec uh, because of a number of different factors. One, because it was, at that time, it seemed really easy to find really compelling stories that no one else was doing. I mean, it was harder to sell these stories, but still, it, it felt like, you know, these are stories that no one else is doing. Um, there was very little competition, which was key. <laughs> it was, you know, um, it, there, there were a lot of nice places to live in Uganda and Kenya. Um, and yeah, and, and there was just something about the, the way it felt living and reporting on the continent. And I think this has to do with my, um, probably my family, family heritage. It just felt comfortable. It just felt like this is a place I could be and I could work and, you know, I didn't feel like a fish out of water. I had the exact same thing with Russia where I went for a year. It was just because I thought, oh, I should go. Comparative advantage, few people at the time. Then I left. And then something just pulls you, yeah. pulls you back in. And I think, I don't know, I was loath to put it on family and stuff, yeah. but with distance now, um, it just feels like you, you know, this is the story you, you can tell better than, uh, better than so many people. But this is not about me, so does anybody else have any questions? Um, I'm actually going to follow up on that and ask you about, you know, I mean, we talked briefly before uh, we started, and I'm also sort of a, what we would call 1.5 generation. I was born abroad, and how does your identity of sort of being between the two um, influence how you approach these issues and influence how you approach your writing and your and the topics that you choose? Yeah, I think it's a big influence. I mean, because it's, it's that kind of sense of um, always feeling like a bit of an outsider in each place. Um, when, you're, when, when I'm in America, I mean, obviously I feel American, but still feeling a little bit like there's something about 
you know, something about me, something about the way I think about, look at the world that puts me apart, especially as I know you did growing up in Alabama. Um, and, then, and then, but then also being in Nigeria or another place and not feeling completely part of that either. And I think that kind of insider-outsider perspective is really helpful as a reporter in terms of looking for things to write about that perhaps um, aren't noticed as much by people who are in of each place and then bringing, um, hopefully, uh, an interesting perspective to those, to those things. But I think, at first, something maybe I wasn't as, com as easy, you know, as comfortable with, that outsiderness is now something I, like, embrace. Thank you for your nice presentation. I'm Ray from Zimbabwe. I would like to ask about, personally for me, what is uh, like a big elephant in the room for you? Somalia, did you re restrict yourself to Mogadishu or you ventured out? Or did, did at any time felt it was a risk to wander around in Somalia? I don't know how it feels, but how did that feel security-wise? Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Um, yeah, I was just in Mogadishu, but th that it did feel like a risk, um, for sure. Um, you know, it's a place where when you stay in your hotel, you know, you're often, you're, you're forced to go around the security escort. But the problem is that that's very limiting to your reporting. And so the second, the next time I went, um, we actually like, you know, we, 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 for, we forewent that. And it was risky, but that was kind of the best way to get close to the subjects. Um, you know, because it's just not, very easy to get someone to feel comfortable around you if you have like four guards with AK-47s outside their house. <laughs> so, um, but I mean, you know, journalists are doing it. You know, they're still going all the time and, and getting those stories, but it, it's a lot harder than it used to be. Um, yeah, you did, there's a scene where you describe, you know, hearing, hearing bombs and stuff in the distance. Did that make you kind of think, oh my God, what am I, what am I doing here? No, because I was interviewing um, uh, the sports minister and like the bomb went off and I like stop in the middle of my question and the interpreter is like, oh, it's fine. Just what, what's the rest of your question? So I mean, <laughs> if, if they're comfortable with it, I was like, okay, let me just like shut up and keep going then. But some of the details of like, of you know, what, what was comfortable there was just, was, was really surprising to me. Like there's a scene where the girls have just left, uh, have just left practice and this random dude pulls up in a car and they get in the car just because they think that he's going to drive them kind of down the road. Is yeah. that just standard practice? Yeah, they were, they were just like, you know, I mean, they were, he, was, he's, he, he had offered, like, I'll just drop you guys, I'll give you a ride, and they had no reason to think that he was, you know, going to do something until he, I mean, he didn't do something, but he did try. And so, yeah, that kind of um, atmosphere where, I mean, people are people are really warm and do offer small kindnesses, a lot of small kindnesses. But in a situation like you know, Mogadishu, you guys sometimes it turns awry. And security-wise, was you know, what what kind of particular thought did you give to to being a woman? I know that it gives you know certain probably extra access. I don't think that a man could have done the the basketball story, for example. Yeah. yeah. I don't know what you think. I don't want to you know. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, what what kind of extra thought did you give to your security as a woman? No, I definitely thought it was an advantage. I mean, you know, my um, my colleagues there were just like, or my friends there were just like, just, just put on the, the headscarf. Um, 
you know, don't speak in public with your American accent and you'll be good to go. And it was true. I mean, you kind of just, um, yeah, you kind of just, especially when, when I was at the court with like the girls, you know, just kind of being in the, in the crowd with them, you, I, I felt like, you know, there, there was no, there was no like unwarranted tension on me with people wondering or anything. Good evening, Alexis. Good evening, everyone. My name is Sartiz Okonko. Um, my parents are from Nigeria as well. But what I want to know is what can we as people in this room or as Americans learn from the Africans and their stories being told, like in terms of dealing with negative circumstances, especially those created by politicians, because you know, you interviewed someone from Somalia, and this is not Somalia right now, but you know, sometimes it feels like we're headed down that road, especially with this administration. So what can we learn from like these Africans? and the stories being told in this book? I mean, that's a good question. I think one thing I noticed with all the subjects is that, you know, because there's a range, you know, there's, you know, we're dealing with an activist who is his, his, his motive is to like launch protests, get thrown in jail. And then we're dealing with someone like Aisha who is not an activist at all. She just wants to play basketball and live her life. But through this range of people, one thing I noticed is that they all, you know, refuse to remain quiet in the face of injustice, whether it's the small daily injustices or like the big institutional ones. And even at the risk of life becoming uncomfortable or um, uneasy for, or uneasy for them in the in the short term. And that was striking to me as something that like I think about now being in the U.S. Like when when we see a justice, whether it's on the subway or whether it's something greater like the immigration ban, in my opinion, what do you do? Do you, you know, do you go outside and protest? I think you should if you feel that way or or you step up for someone who's being harassed or, you know, what, what, what can you do to preserve the kind of ideals that you uphold and that you hold dear? Like, how do you do it? And I think they're doing it the best they can and um, there's a way we can do it too in our own ways. Was there a thread that kind of tied together the motivation of these people? Like the the anti-slavery activist, uh, you know, um, was absolutely, you know, I will never give up and was 100% committed to the cause. And I think it seemed anyway, understood his place in history and was really fighting for his place in history. But did people like Aisha and maybe some of the others that you wrote about, do you think that they understood their role in fighting extremism? No, no. I mean, this is definitely... Um yeah, it, it, it's, it's my, um, and I guess that's why it was key to, to have me partly in it, because this is my perception of them, of what they're doing. Um, but no, if you talk to Aisha, she's just like, no, I'm just like trying to go see my boyfriend tomorrow. Like, I'm not buying extremism. Um, but that's what I think is so great about it, because it, it is the subtle, shifting, mutating thing that is hard to kind of pin down sometimes, but it is, definitely exists in different forms and that it's important, I think, to highlight. Um, this is a question for both of you. Um, I work in the UN, and part of what we do is try focus people's attention on different crises around the world, and not that there's a hierarchy, but certain crises get more attention, certain stories get more attention, certain people and countries get more attention. How do you think that situation can be dealt with um, what kind of stories can help break that or just it's a very vague question but I think it's a it's a huge issue and a huge challenge and I'd love both your thoughts on that 
I'll, I'll say it as the writer has to pitch ideas, and you say it as the editor who has to accept them. Um, well, it, uh, I mean, especially when I was freelancing, I found that, you know, of course, there's already a huge barrier to selling the stories out of Africa, but I found that the ones that worked well the most were centered around people, that they were um, narratives, profiles, centered around people who were doing you know, extraordinary things. I mean, it, you know, it, it's a high bar, unfortunately, but I found that as a way to kind of get into a larger discussion ab about what's going on and then to kind of bring in the more, you know, the more serious or more ordinary aspects of that. But it felt like there had to be something human and something at the core that was unusual and, yeah. Yeah, I think this is why you're a staff writer at The New Yorker and the author of a soon-to-be-very-successful book, because that's, I think, the right, you know, absolutely the right answer. You know, I'm thinking in particular of the chapter on um, Boko Haram. It centers around a girl named Rebecca, and she's not, you know, a victim of Boko Haram. She's a girl named Rebecca who has a family, and you really just, you know, feel like you're... Um, you're just immersed in her life. So I think um, deep humanity is is really the key. And then um, if I put my editor hat on, the other thing that, that uh, we try to do is um, in parts of the world that, you know, people maybe don't connect with as easily and... Um, you know, like my obsession is also Central Asia. It can be really hard to get Central Asian stories out there. Uh, focusing on women, uh, focusing on LGBT people and finding like the connections that people can make um, uh, that way, for example. I know I get to talk to Alexis all the time, but this just made me think <laughs> of a question. I hope you don't mind my taking the time. Um, and it's something that would be interesting to get Miriam to answer as well. I was thinking a lot about the questions that Alexis, you got about um, whether you connected with the subjects or the topics easier because you're, you have Nigerian heritage and maybe there was greater acceptance or you knew the stories to look for, that sort of thing. And I wanna flip it a little bit and see, you know, there, I mean, Africa is almost never on pages of big American publications unless there's like an, oh, something horrific happening. So there's sort of this um, monotonous image of lots and lots of countries, right? Do you think that if you had more journalists of either the descent or, or you know, zero generation immigrants who are perhaps telling more authentic stories and bringing more um, different aspects that kind of interest, that would that get the interest of more of a broad readership and perhaps uh, then mean that from a business perspective, more of these stories would surface? Uh, in, in general media. And I, I think Miriam, as an editor, that would be an interesting question for you as well. No, I, 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 I think so. I mean, because as you said, because as we both said, we, we felt like we brought a unique um, perspective to our work. Um, yeah, what, what do you think? Yeah, well, and I think, you know, for a long time, foreign correspondents really had like a colonialist aspect where people, um, again, normally white men would be sent out um, and, you know, tasked with telling stories of, like, the natives to, like, the, you know, civilized people back home, which is uh, absolutely, um, you know, a model that just doesn't work. It dehumanizes people. Um, it doesn't tell the full story. Uh, and so I think it's, you know, it's great to have... Um, diverse journalists, journalists who speak the languages of the places that they go, that you know really immerse themselves in the culture and can be of the culture in a way that uh, just hasn't been the case really until very recently. I think it's really important. Sorry, hi Alexis, uh, congrats again on the book. Um, 
if I might try to sneak in two questions. One is following up on a question that Miriam asked and uh, the, the last uh, questioner asked. Um, so much of Africa coverage um, maybe falls into these, well, critiques, right? We, we know some of the problems with Africa coverage, but also the critique that many, I think, Africans have of um, the coverage of their own continent. And this is something we, all, I think, always have to remember is when you're writing for The New Yorker, people in Lagos and Mogadishu are also reading The New Yorker, um, is this kind of hopeless continent versus Africa rising. Um, and when you're working on these types of stories, which are about ordinary people doing extraordinary things, but on the aggregate are kind of grim stories about people trying to overcome some pretty terrible things. Um, are you cognizant of where your writing might fall on that spectrum and how it might be received? And um, in what ways does that shape the way you approach these stories and trying to say, you know, not, not be uh, writing an Africa rising story or a hopeless continent story, but something that, that's more true than either of those kind of false narratives? Yeah, I mean, I think that's the constant, um, that's a constant struggle because, you know, you, you, you do want to portray things as truthfully as possible. Um, you know, I remember one time I was doing a panel years ago with another Nigerian-American journalist, and an Nigerian man got up and said, why are you guys, it was about Boko Haram, he's like, why are you guys always writing about Boko Haram, or, you know, about the bad side of Nigeria? And I was like, you know, I hear you, but this is, this is what's happening, and it's serious, and like, you know, if, if we aren't talking about it, then, then who is? Um, and so I think the burden is, is then to, when you're writing about stories like that, to, to, to humanize as much as possible, to, to show the people at the center of it, to show empathy in your reporting, to show that, you know, to, to make these people um, re even relatable if you can. I mean, I think that's always the biggest goal is, is, to, is to do that so it doesn't seem like some, you know, dark, foreign, strange thing. And I think that as far as like as a journalist in, the, in a body of work, you know, um, a goal also is to also try to show as many sides of the place as you can. Um, you know, I was very happy to work on a story about Nigerian fashion recently. Uh, that was very fun. Yeah, but that, I think that's the constant, the constant struggle, especially when it comes to coverage of Africa. All right, on that, I think uh, we're going to wrap it up. Thank you so much, Alexis. Thank you. And congratulations, and everybody, buy this book, read this book. It's really incredible. Thank so, you so thank much, you. Mary. Thank you for listening to this New America NYC podcast. This recording carries a Creative Commons, non-commercial, 4.0 international license. To learn more about New America, please visit us at newamerica.org.